with me to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one that's in the chair. The, the page number for the passage we're looking at today uh, will be up on the, the screen in just a minute. But we'll be in, starting in Galatians 3.25. Here at Grace Fellowship, what we do is we work through whole books of the Bible at a time. So uh, we've been in uh, this letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians now for several weeks And in that time, we have covered some very important Bible words. Uh, The key word, really, for this letter is the word justified. Justification. Which means this, right? Because of Christ, I am accepted in God's sight just as if I'd never sinned. And just as if I'd done everything right. That's what justification means, that when God looks upon me, he sees his son, Jesus. And because he sees his son, Jesus, all of my debt, all of my sin has been forgiven and I receive Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be justified. And that is an act of God's grace. That's not something that I have earned or deserved. It is something that God has given to me in Christ. There's another important Bible truth that we've looked at in this letter, and it's the the phrase union with Christ. This is uh, maybe a a more foreign concept to some of us, but it's clearly taught in Scripture, and it's one we should talk about more because it's really the foundation of everything else. That by faith, I am in Christ, and He is in me. It is because I am in Christ that I am justified. I am, I am tethered to him, as it were. I'm, I'm like a, a branch connected to a tree. I am united to him. And because, right, just like a branch, if a branch is united to a tree, well, it grows. It gets all its life from the tree. It bears fruit. But apart from the tree, if I'm disconnected from Christ, I don't receive any of those benefits. So justification, we've looked at, we've talked about being united to Christ, our union with Christ. And today, today we're going to look at another important Bible word, something else, another, another benefit of being united to Christ. And this is the word adoption. And so if you would, let's look at Galatians 3, 25. And I'm going to read through 4, 7. Paul writes this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. So let's pray and ask his spirit to help us. Our gracious God, would you help me in the the limited time that we have to unpack the beauty of adoption? And would you help each one of us to believe the beauty of adoption and so be transformed in the way that we live? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that one day you came across a box, an old box of family pictures and papers. And as you began to rifle through it and smile at some of the familiar faces and and puzzle at some of the faces that aren't so familiar, uh, you're digging through this treasure box and you find at the bottom an envelope, an old vanilla envelope buried Looks like nobody has seen it or touched it for decades. And so you you pull it out and you open it up. And inside you find a will. And that will tells you that you're actually the long lost descendant of a billionaire. We can all hope, can't we? You call the, the law firm whose name is on that will. And you discover that you have access to everything. That the billionaire owned, including a jet and a private island. And so you make a few phone calls. You book a flight on that billionaire's jet. Now your jet. And you fly on your jet down to his island. Now your island. And when your plane pulls up on the tarmac and the door opens up, his driver Now, your driver puts you in the car and takes you up to a large mansion. And from your bedroom, you can survey all of these things that belonged to him and now belong to you. They are yours. And you have done nothing to earn them. You've done nothing to gain them. They simply come to you by virtue of your relationship to Someone else. That is the beautiful truth of adoption. Paul tells us in this passage that under the law, we were like slaves. He even says at the beginning of chapter 4 that even though we are heirs, right? When an heir is as a child, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, he's really no different than a slave. He owns everything, right? He's... In one sense, the master of the house, but he's not old enough to take possession of it yet. Instead, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, until he should grow up and inherit all that is his. And Paul is telling us that 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 time has come, that under the law, we were like children 
being managed by other people. But now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer slaves, but we are adopted sons and daughters. That's what we're going to look at today. Through Christ, we are no longer slaves, but we are God's adopted sons and daughters. And we're going to look at this under two headings. First, we're going to talk about who we are in Christ. And then we're going to talk about how God accomplishes that, how God works out that new identity. Who are we in Christ? Well, Paul says at the end of chapter 3 there, in verse 26, that we are all sons of God through faith. That means that, that God is no longer my judge. He does not stand over me as judge Now in Christ, and we should say only in Christ, he is my father. The Bible Bible doesn't teach this idea that that everyone on earth is a child of God. I know that's a a common thing that we often like to say, that that, uh, we're, we're all God's children. But that's not actually how the Bible speaks. To be sure, we're all created by God. But those who believe in Jesus actually can be called sons and daughters because they are related to the son, Jesus. The only way that we become God's children is by trusting in Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus is the true son. He is, he is our older brother. He is the one who has done everything right. Do you have, you have an older brother, an older sister like that? They're, they're just the ones who always do everything right? I think they do. In this case, it's actually true, right? Jesus is the older brother who does everything right. And then he gives us the benefits and brings us into the family. And that's why Paul, by the way, can address both men and women, because he's writing to men and women in this letter. He can address both as sons. Now, you might hear that. You might look at the Bible and say, oh, gosh, what a, what a chauvinistic book. You know, here's just one more relic of an ancient past where we see that, that God doesn't like women, that God favors men. But that's actually not true, right? If, if, if you think that, you're actually missing just how radical Paul's words are. You see, in the, in the Roman world, daughters had no rights. As heirs. Right? Their, their rights would come through being married to someone else. The firstborn son received the inheritance. But Paul is saying that if you are adopted in Christ, you are an heir to God's kingdom. Whether you're a man or a woman, that you receive God's kingdom through the son jesus in other words you are treated just like the firstborn son so you want the bible to say in one sense you are a son of god because it reminds you that your inheritance comes through the son jesus we want to be treated like him and not only are we sons of god paul says but we are also One with each other. Look at verse 27. 
He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When he talks about baptism, he's not necessarily talking about the the ceremony where water is taken and, and washes a person. He's talking about the spiritual reality that that outward ceremony points to. And that spiritual reality is that we are united to Christ. Right. So we would say that not everybody who is baptized, whether you're a a believer's baptism only or you believe like we do here that we we baptize infants. Right. That doesn't automatically link you to Jesus. It's an inward reality. It's an inward union in which we are united to Christ and his death and his resurrection. And Paul says when that happens, when that spiritual reality is true, you have put on Christ. And when you have put on Christ, you are one with everyone else who has put on Christ as well. We are one with each other. We are one family. And here's what that means. He goes on in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That means that we are not separated By all of the normal categories that separate people. That in Christ, we are not separated by our ethnicity. There is no Jew nor Greek. In Christ, we are not separated by our economic status. Slave or free. In Christ, we are not separated by our gender. Male or female. Now... This doesn't mean that God obliterates those distinctions. It doesn't mean that God treats those things like they don't exist. Some have used these verses to try to prove that very point. It doesn't matter if I'm a man or a woman because God doesn't see me that way. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is that those things are not what earn you status before God. Those distinctions are real, right? Those, those are part of our stories, but that's not what, uh, that's not what gains us any, any ground before Christ, right? They, uh, John Stott puts it this way. He's a pastor. He says, those distinctions are still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters In Christ. Here's what that means. There's no Jew nor Greek. Ethnic pride, also known as racism, has no place in the church. Ethnic and cultural distinctions do exist. We're not we're not colorblind. That is not a reality. Ethnic, right? We don't we don't try to we don't try to flatten out all ethnic and cultural distinctions. That would be unrealistic. And in fact, we even see in the new heavens and the new earth, in the picture that's painted there for us of what of what will be one day someday, that there are people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around the throne praising God. They're not all Caucasian and they're not all speaking English. Right? English may not even exist as a language. When we get to that point, right? So, ethnic pride has no place in the church. We even see that there's beauty in diversity. 
Right? One ethnicity is not superior in God's eyes to another. In Paul's case, writing this letter, Jewish people are not inherently superior to Gentile people. That's one point he's making. We would say white people are not inherently superior to black people or vice versa. Americans are not inherently superior to Mexicans or Hondurans or Guatemalans or Koreans or Chinese people. There is no place for ethnic pride in the church. There's neither slave nor free. Economic pride has no place in the church. Every culture in the world has some form of a caste system. You may be familiar with India's caste system where everybody is born into a certain group. And you don't get to leave your group. If you're born in this group, if you're, if you're wealthy, you stay there. And if you're born at the lowest of the low, you stay there. Right? That's, what a, a, that's what their caste system is like. But every, every culture, every country in the world has a caste system. There are those who have wealth and influence, and there are those that don't. Even Jesus himself says, the poor you will always have with you. Within the life of the church, there will be wealthy and there will be poor. But those status markers gain us nothing in Christ. The wealthy are not closer to God because they are wealthy. The poor are not closer to God because they are poor. And neither one has any right to judge the other. God has distributed, and this, is, this can be a hard pill to swallow. God has distributed gifts and privileges unequally. That's reality. I remember uh, when I was beginning in ministry, starting to take seminary classes, I would look at like famous preachers. And think, you know what, the only thing that uh, separates me from Tim Keller is just time. I'm so, that's, that's, who you, that's who you got, all right? Um, I, I really did think, like, okay, it's just a matter of time. If I, can just, if I can just read as much, if I can just study as hard, I could be Tim Keller. I cannot be. Like a, like a lightning bolt, okay? The, that thought, the thought came that, like, no, guys like Tim Keller and John Piper and whomever it is you like to listen to, those men have intellectual capacity that I do not possess. They have desires that I do not have. Those, those gifts have not been distributed to me. And you know what? That's okay. Because that is not the definition of my identity. I am a dearly loved, blood-bought son of God. I don't have to have Tim Keller's gifts. I don't have to have his stellar preaching skills. I got what I got. And you have to put up with it. All right? We're all one in Christ. Our gifts and privileges, those are a part of us, but they're not our ultimate identity. There are, no second, there are no second class Christians. And then finally, let's address as well gender distinctions. God creates us, male and female, as part of his image. Your distinct gender is part of God's glory revealed in you. That is part of God's 
designed for you. But what Paul is telling us here is that God does not favor one over the other. God does not favor men over women. Women are not closer to God than men. God has created both in his image. How boring if everybody just sings harmony. I mean, excuse me, how boring if everybody just sings melody. If everybody just sings the same part. But we don't. There is harmony, right? There are, there are different voices doing different things, but they're all one in Christ. We're singing the same piece of music. So, that's who we are in Christ. We belong to God as his sons and daughters. We belong to each other as family. And so, as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 4, we are no longer under guardians and managers. We have come into the age of our maturity. How does God accomplish that? That's, That's our identity. How does God accomplish that identity? He does two things. First... Look at verse 4. He says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. What does that mean, the fullness of time? Maybe your translation says something like, at the right time. But think think about this moment in history when Jesus arrives. Why did God choose that moment? We don't. No, beyond the shadow of a doubt. And yet, it was at that moment in history when Roman roads connected much of the world. It was at that moment in history when Roman centurions created peace through sword, but still created peace through much of the known world. So you could travel on those roads and you could carry messages to other parts of the Roman Empire without worry, without fear. It was at this moment in history when Greek culture and language were widespread so that a lot of people had a common language so that the New Testament could be written in that language so that it could be disseminated throughout the Roman Empire for people to understand. It's at this moment in history that God sends forth, sends out his son. And what does he say? There are two qualifications. The son was born of a woman. Just like you and me, Jesus took on our flesh. He was one with us. He was also born under the law, like you and me. He had to fulfill all of the same obligations that you and I are called to fulfill. He had to be obedient to all of the same demands of his father that anyone else would. And he did. He did not sin. He fulfilled every commandment of God perfectly. And why did he do those things? Paul says, to redeem those under the law. To buy back, to purchase, to to buy out of slavery. He was born under the law to redeem us from under the law so that what? We would receive the adoption as sons. Jesus redeems us. To give us the gift of sonship. That's what God sent his son to do. But he didn't stop there. God also sent someone else. Look at verse 6. Same exact word he uses in verse 4. Because you are sons, 
God has sent, same verb, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba was the Aramaic word for dad. Some have said that's kind of like the word daddy. That, that carries with it some really unhelpful, spoiled, bratish type connotations that I don't care for. But it, does, but it is a word of closeness. Right? It's, what, it's what Jewish sons and daughters called their fathers, even when they grew up into adulthood. So we might say dad. Right? Not as formal as father. Not only does God give us his son to accomplish our salvation... But then he also gives us his spirit so we can experience it, right? Without, without the spirit, Jesus' work remains outside of us. But God sends his spirit so that it becomes reality in our hearts, so that we can cry out. We can call the God of heaven and earth our father. J.I. Packer, a theologian, says that's what makes the New Testament new, is that now, for the first time, a believer can call God Father. We experience that reality in prayer. We have that, we have that opportunity for closeness because God is our Father. So how do we put this truth to work? Two things. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. I want you, to, I want you to ask yourself this question. And I want you to write down on a piece of paper. If you've got one, you can write it on the bulletin. I'll, I'll give you a second. But I want you to ask yourself, who am I? And I want you to write five words that define your identity. Five words by which you would answer the question, who am I? And don't cheat because we've been talking about adoption. Like, be honest, you know. Who am I? What are the first five words that come to mind? What questions, what struggles do you have around your identity, around those five words? Maybe you're asking, along with who am I, you're asking, do I matter? Or you're asking, why am I here? Where do I fit in? And so I want you to to hear the, the answer to those questions with the truth of adoption. In Christ, you are a dearly loved, blood bought son or daughter of a loving father. That means you have meaning, you have purpose, you have identity. Right? You were, the Bible tells us, alienated and separated from him. But when you trust in Christ, that alienation and separation goes away. You see, justification answers condemnation. Uh, we're guilty, and justification says not guilty. Adoption answers a different sin problem. Adoption answers our alienation, our estrangement from God, right? Not only are we guilty before God, but because we're guilty, we're also estranged from him. 
And so adoption answers that problem by bringing us in. We're no longer separated. We're no longer estranged. Remember whose you are. God is your father. Your family of origin is important. Right? It shapes us in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, Pastor Pete Scazzaro will often say, uh, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And you understand what he means when he says that, right? A lot of that inward turmoil and war we feel, yes, we belong to Jesus, but also we've been shaped by our families of origin, by the influences that come before us. And so you need to hear that in adoption, whatever, whatever the status of your family, whether it's healthy or dysfunctional, whether it's whole or broken, adoption in Christ actually enables you to come to grips with that. You can actually turn and you can look at your family of origin and see, because every single one does, you can look at your family of origin and see where it falls short. How does adoption enable you to do that? Well, it says that you're, not, you're no longer defined by your family of origin. Right? It, it, it gives you the freedom. You're, you're not doomed to repeat the failures of prior generations. You've been given a new identity and a new family. And that actually frees you to kind of look at your past and make peace with some of those issues, some of the, that baggage that you carry into your current life. Even though you may need some... Right? What, what, we, what I call these are, there's, we have scripts, right? We have narratives that always play in our heads. Stories that run in our heads in the way that we were shaped as children all the way up to now. And those come from our families of origin. Those come from uh, other, other experiences. And so what we have to do is we have to acknowledge what those narratives are and then see how the truth of the gospel speaks to those narratives. That we are adopted in Christ and therefore, regardless of how my, my family has shaped me, I am not doomed to repeat their mistakes. I am not constrained by their successes. I am God's and God's first. So let the joy of adoption rewrite your story. But then also, I said remember whose you are, but also remember who you are. You're not a slave. And you're not an orphan. So don't live like one. Don't live like a slave or an orphan. Listen to Jesus himself. He says in Luke 6. He says, love your enemies. And do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Remember who you are. You are a son of the King. You are a daughter of the King. Let His values shape how you respond to the world around you. I think that every person in the room longs to hear words like these. With you, I am well pleased. Well done. I would say that every person in the room is designed and longs to hear those words primarily from their father. 
that there is a that there is a power that a father has in the lives of his sons and daughters that I don't I don't think anyone else has. And fathers, we shouldn't carry that lightly. Yet. Some of us have never heard that. Your earthly father may be a good dad, but because of his own wounds and sins, he struggles to say those words. Or he may be incapable of telling you that. You may not know your father. He may have left. He may have died. Maybe your father is a despicable person who has used and neglected you. But we are made to receive those words of approval. When Jesus began his ministry by being baptized by John, his father split the heavens and said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Or, in you I take great delight. After that affirmation, his father drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by his enemy. Do you know the first temptation? It came with a question. If you are the Son of God. Catch the connection. God affirms his sonship before he sends him out to have the enemy question it. The very first question that Satan asked Jesus He causes him to doubt. He says, if you are the Son of God. It's it's an identity challenge. But Jesus succeeds. The Father affirmed the Son's identity because he knew the enemy would question it. Jesus lived his entire life knowing the love and approval of his Father. Can you imagine? All the way up. Until he was on the cross, where he hung naked and separated from his father, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But those were not his last words. His last words, as recorded in Luke 23, 46, were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus goes into the tomb affirming his father's love. Paul tells us in Romans 1.4 that his resurrection was proof of his sonship. Here's why I say all that. Jesus lived and died and rose again as the dearly loved son of his heavenly father. He lived his entire life hearing those words, With you I am well pleased. In you I take great delight. And if you will trust in him, you will hear those exact same words. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of being adopted into your family. 
of being made one with Jesus, of having the Holy Spirit so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Oh Lord, would you help us to delight in our adoption. Lord, for those who do not yet know this beauty, for those who have not yet experienced this truth, I pray that they would today, that they would know your love and that they would be able to call you Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come,